Please take your Bibles again this evening and turn with me to Ephesians 6. The larger passage I'm preaching from, once again, is verses 10 through 18, which describes what Paul calls the whole armor of God. But we're just going to be focusing again this evening on one of the pieces of that armor. And it's the one that's mentioned in the last half of verse 14. So I'll just read verse 14 this evening. It's the breastplate of righteousness. Paul says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So let's once again look to God and ask for his help in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ, your Son, and that although in saving us you have placed us in the midst of a heated battle, the Christian warfare, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of darkness, Yet we thank you also that you have given us everything we need for this battle. Help us tonight to better understand this one piece that we're looking at, the breastplate of righteousness. And may we use it biblically for the glory of your Son and for the good of our souls. And we ask all of this in Jesus Christ, your Son's name. Amen. Well, we began to look this morning at the breastplate of righteousness, and I use this language. It's what we're looking at is the breastplate of righteousness, level two. And I said, I believe it's right to see the breastplate of righteousness as including both the very righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed or given to the believer as a garment, we could say. That's the first aspect of it. It's the most significant one. It's the one we just sang about in hymn number 440 a moment ago. It's given freely to the believer when he puts his faith in Jesus Christ. But I said, it's also right to understand that the breastplate of righteousness includes the believer's integrity as a Christian, his conduct, his righteous conduct, his righteous living. I demonstrated that from the scripture. I'll not do it all over again. Although, in a way, I will be doing it all the rest of this message because we're going to look at a number of passages in which we can see how this um, piece of armor is used in the Christian life, if you will. I'll just mention that we noted that it's right to understand this as part of the breastplate of righteousness because it certainly fits the terminology, breastplate of righteousness, as I said, it's a cover for the main part of our body. I was instructed after um, the sermon that the way that you sign the breastplate of righteousness is like this and then like this. So don't ask me a week from now, but I'll try to remember it. It covers the midsection, kind of like uh, catcher's 
protective equipment covers his midsection. Um, that's what a breastplate does. It fits on the front of the soldier and it protects him from arrows, swords, darts that are fired at him. So it fits the terminology, it fits the language. And remember that I mentioned, I think last week, that this language that we have here is very dense. And I said there's a sense in which we could say this passage here is teaching about the entirety of the Christian life, but just looked at from one angle, and that is from the angle that it is spiritual warfare. And thus, it's fitting that someone like William Gurnall would write a 1,200-page book on the Christian in complete armor. I said, secondly, that we can say this is a scriptural way to understand the breastplate of righteousness, that it includes the believer's righteous conduct, the believer's keeping a good conscience, because it is a very biblical concept. It's a biblical idea. It is biblical teaching. And then also, I just pointed out that it's a common way that Reformed writers, Reformed theologians, pastors, preachers, have understood the breastplate. I mentioned Calvin in the Reformation. I mentioned at least, I think, three Puritans. I mentioned William Hendrickson from the 20th century. They all looked at it that way. So to summarize what we saw, there are two aspects in which we can understand the breastplate of righteousness. One is, and this is the main thing and the most important thing, it's Christ's work for us imputed to us, credited to our account, freely given to us. That's the first way. The second way, though, is what we're looking at today, and that is Christ's work in us. As a couple of the Puritans said, it's not Christ's work imputed, but it's Christ's work imparted. When God justifies a Christian, he doesn't just declare him to be righteous— he then gives him a, a righteous nature, if you will, a new nature. All things are new. That's not justification. That's part of his sanctification. But the fact is, it's a reality. And so that's the righteousness of Christ imparted to him or implanted within him, as Gurnall stated it, I think. So the, righteous, the, the breastplate of righteousness consists of the, what Christ accomplished on the cross for us and then what he does in us in our life as Christians. So today's messages is focusing on the breastplate of righteousness, level two. I said it was level two because it's uh, the second sub subheading in dealing with the breastplate of righteousness, and it's of secondary significance. You shouldn't look at it as an insignificant thing, the point is, though, it does not measure up to the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, but it's something that is a, an important part of living the Christian life. And we're going to see that demonstrated in the Bible once again this evening. So we saw that what, what the Bible says about righteous behavior, because I wanted to demonstrate that the word righteousness does not simply refer in the New Testament to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It also refers to the righteousness of the saints. So we saw what the, how the Bible shows that that's true, righteous behavior. 
Then we saw what the Bible teaches, just very briefly, about a good conscience. And we only got to that second point. So tonight, as I mentioned, our focus is on this, how a believer's righteous conduct or his good conscience function in practice as armor against the devil's schemes. We can easily understand, I hope you can anyway, how Christ's righteousness imputed does that. The perfect righteousness that Christ gives us functions as armor against the schemes of the devil, especially when the devil is accusing me, trying to convince me that I'm not really a Christian. And in doing that, he's trying to hamstring me. He's trying to injure me in such a way that at best I'm going to limp along in the Christian life. I'm not going to be a bold Christian. I'm not going to be a zealous Christian. I'm not going to perform exploits, if you will, for the kingdom of God. That's what Satan wants to do with trying to make me feel like I'm not even a Christian. So I can see how the righteousness of Christ works as a piece of armor against the devil's devices or his wiles or his schemes. I simply go this, I simply look at it this way. I say to the Lord, Lord, the devil is getting at my conscience here. He's trying to make me think I'm not even a Christian. And so, Lord, don't look at me. Look at Christ, whose perfect righteousness covers me and protects me. Now, in saying that, I made zero reference to my behavior. And I did it on purpose. Because I can't stand on the basis of my behavior before God. And I am certainly not saved on the basis of it. We can easily understand how Christ's righteousness is used as a breastplate. But what we want to look at is how righteous conduct of the believer, the believer's good conscience, functions as armor against the devil's schemes. We saw it in the Apostle Paul in a couple of places this morning. Let's notice this by looking at a number of other scriptural passages, and we'll go back to the Apostle Paul as well this evening. But what we're going to start in the Old Testament with David, and that is in Psalm 18. So let's go back to Psalm 18 as we begin this evening. This is a Psalm of David. It's a lengthy Psalm. We're told a little bit about it in the title of it. The title reads, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So it's about many enemies that David had. One was the king of Israel himself, that David succeeded as a king. But after God took Saul out of the way, uh, help David defeat the Philistines, the Ammonites, and so on and so forth. Uh, David spoke the words of this psalm, or wrote the words of this psalm, or both. And so what I want to do is just jump into the psalm, and we'll jump in at verse 16, and David will talk about this deliverance of the Lord. And he'll say some things that fit right in with this topic we've been looking at today, 
the breastplate of righteousness from the standpoint of the believer's righteous conduct and the believer's good conscience forming part of that breastplate. Starting in verse 16, and I'll read down to verse 27. He sent from above, this is God, He took me, He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With a merciful you will show yourself... Well, I just read two more verses. With a merciful you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man you will show yourself blameless. With the pure you will show yourself pure. And with a devious you will show yourself shrewd. So let's think about this text and let's, I'll do most of the, uh, each of these texts we look at with basically a, uh, a three um, heading outline. We'll look at the trouble that the writer is in. We'll look at the deliverance that the Lord brings. And then we'll look at the means that he uses, or to put it in terms of our subject, the armor that God uses to bring him out of this trial. So Psalm 18, starting at verse 16, let's think of the trouble David was in first of all. And we see David states, beginning at verse 16, that he was in trouble. He says, the Lord drew me out of many waters. He was in trouble, but let's look at the trouble in particular. He delivered me from my strong enemies, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. And then he says, they confronted me in the day of my calamity. Now, if you read other Psalms of David, you find out that he's saying that he didn't just have enemies who were after his life. He did. But he also had enemies who were after his reputation. They spoke evil of him. And they were trying to turn people against him and get him to go after, get them to go after David like Saul did, or maybe to turn David over to Saul. Think of Doeg the Edomite, for instance, one of Saul's servants who did that. He, he, he slandered David. So he had many enemies against him. And David acknowledges they were too strong for him. Well, it's kind of like our spiritual battle, is it not? We have many enemies against us. The hosts, the spiritual hosts of wickedness, all lined up against us in our spiritual battle. And frankly, they are too strong for us. So that's David's trouble. He has many enemies against him. But let's notice his deliverance. And that's in the last part of verse 18. But the Lord was my support, he says. The Lord was my support. And then we see in verse 16, the first part of this statement that I've read, he sent from above, God did. He took me. He 
drew me out of many waters. So there I was with all these enemies around me who were too strong for me. It's kind of like a picture, David says, of myself drowning in the sea. And what did God do? He reached down into the sea. He picked me up. He drew me out. He saved me. So there's David's trouble. There's David's deliverance. And then we just want to notice the means, partly at at least, that God used. The armor that God used to shield David from all these foes. What did it include? Well, it included the breastplate of righteousness, we could say, from a New Testament perspective. And it included this element of the breastplate of righteousness that I'm discussing with you today, that I'm preaching about today, and that is the breastplate of righteousness as it represents the believer's own righteous conduct in his good conscience. Let's notice that in a number of, of the verses here, starting with verse 20. Again, after David says in verse 19, he brought me into a broad place. There's the deliverance. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Then we read in verse 20, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness According to the cleanness of my hands, he recompensed me. So when I prayed that the Lord would deliver me from my enemies, part of what David was saying is, Lord, look, they're accusing me of being wicked, but look at my hands. I don't have blood on them. That's what he's saying. He doesn't say the Lord rewarded me according to his righteousness. Now he did. But he rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. And then verse 21. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. It's David's righteous conduct he he points to. This is what God used to help shield David kept him from going bonkers in a sense by thinking is what these people saying true or not he said no it's not i haven't done the things that they've accused me of i mean david was keeping a good conscience remember even when he had saul dead to rights in the cave he didn't kill him like his um friends urged him to do he did cut off a corner of his garment But when he did that, remember, his conscience smote him, and he confessed it. He said he shouldn't have done it. He kept a good conscience. Verse 22, For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. So in other words, he's he's appealing to this, that in the thick of the battle, When Saul could have seemingly had me at any moment and I would have been gone from this world, God protected me. But he's saying throughout the whole time, difficult as it got, I kept obeying God's word. I did not put his statutes away from me. Verse 23, again, I was also blameless before him and I kept myself from my iniquity. Verse 24, Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now is David saying ultimately he deserved this? No, he wasn't. But he's saying 
I did keep my nose clean in a sense. I obeyed God's commandments. And the Lord has recompensed me according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. That's what he's saying. I mean, it's verse after verse after verse. You're almost feeling like you say, okay, enough already, David. I mean, this guy is shameless, isn't he? But this is what he's saying in the scripture. So we could go on. A couple more verses we have. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. In other words, I'm merciful toward Saul. And so look, God is merciful toward me. His righteous conduct, he appeals to. Verse 26. I just, I just, verse 26. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. And David has good confidence that God is not going to show himself shrewd or devious toward David. He's going to show himself pure. Why? Because he has been pure. And David wasn't even ashamed to say in verse 19, in the middle of the verse, he delivered me because he delighted in me. Now, God delighted in him out of pure sovereign grace. He chose him from before the foundation of the world in Christ, not only before David had done anything good or bad, because David didn't even exist yet, but not only before that, but not because of anything David had ever done. That's the bottom line. Salvation is all and entirely of grace and grace alone. But David is also pointing out when he says he delivered me because he delighted in me, he then goes on to enumerate a number of the reasons why God delighted him in him. And we should think of it that way, brethren. God delights in his people when they do his will. I mean, sometimes I think, do I almost need to give a quiz on that one for professing Christians? Is that true or false? God is our heavenly father, right? So, earthly fathers, to whatever degree they're earthly fathers, it's because they're mimicking our father in heaven, right? So, God loves his children out of pure and free grace, and that's the bottom line. So as a father, I love my children just because they're my children. They don't have to do anything good for me to love them and delight in them. I loved each one of my kids before I ever saw them. I mean, I don't even, we didn't even have ultrasounds of our kids before they were born. But I, without even seeing them, I loved every one of them. Part of the reason I loved them was because they were mine. That's kind of like God. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, set his love upon us before we ever existed. That's the way a father should act, right? But then when God caused his children to be born again in Jesus Christ and they believed the gospel, that was the beginning of God starting to make them look more like him, like himself, right? in their conduct. And the more he saw that, the more he loved it. Kind of like when your child comes out and someone says, oh, he looks just like his dad. Kind of warms your heart even a little bit more to that little one, doesn't it? 
another layer of love. And then if you're a Christian parent especially, but probably any parent, as a child gets older, starts understanding English, and you start telling them things in English or Spanish or whatever you speak in your home, and the child actually starts doing it, doesn't the love even grow? That's not because you are such a great parent. It's because you are acting like the Heavenly Father. Kind of like it even tells us about Jesus in the upper room discourse. The Father loves the Son because He does His will. And God treats us like that too. Is your doing God's will the basis of His love for you? Absolutely not. But is it a reality that He delivered me because He delighted in me and then David tells about all the things that God delighted in? It is a reality. It's grace also. It's not legalism. No, that's not the way it is. So there's David, Psalm 18. Let's go to 1 John 3, 17 to 19. I think I need to pick up the pace. 1 John 3, 17 to 19. I will make this my last message on the breastplate of righteousness regardless. And I will not preach for an hour and a half. John, 1 John 3, starting at verse 17. John says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. All right, so what's the trouble envisioned here? Well, the trouble is what we see in the last part of verse 17, this question that John raises. If someone doesn't love his brother, he has a brother in need, he could help him. The brother hasn't eaten in three days. He's got enough food for the rest of the week, but he just doesn't feel like sharing it. Maybe he doesn't like that person that much, so he doesn't share it. And so John asks the question, how does the love of God abide in him? Here's the trouble. That you're in the position that someone of authority, an apostle, raises the question, maybe, although you profess to love God, maybe you really don't. I mean, that's trouble, isn't it? For you as a professing Christian to start contemplating, maybe I'm really not a Christian. Maybe although I say I love God, I really don't. That's the trouble in view. And so, that's what we see in verse 17. And now we come to, not the deliverance, but we have the means that we, by which we can be shielded from this trouble of thinking, maybe I'm not really a Christian. And here's what it is. We see it negatively in the first part of verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. In other words, if that's the way you live, you're not getting delivered from this trouble at this point. John wants you to keep thinking as long as you keep shutting up your heart toward your brother, 
that there's a real possibility you're not the genuine item. You're not a real Christian. His point, real Christians don't live that way. And he's helping you and me see that. And hopefully mend our pace if we're the ones that don't love our brother. Look at the beginning of verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue. In other words, it's not really love if all you do is say it. Remember James 2? Someone of the, one of your brethren is needy. He needs food. He needs a garment. Don't think you can get away, James says, with saying loving words. Brother, be well fed and clothed. See you next Lord's Day. And you don't lift a finger to help him find something to eat or something to wear. So this is a negative way that you use armor. You don't use it that way. You don't just use words. It's got to be deeds, our subject. But now let's notice positively the last part of verse 18. But love in deed and in truth. Demonstrate your love by giving him some bread. Demonstrate some love by lending him one of your cloaks. He has none. You have one for every day of the week. Demonstrate some, or even if you just have two, show it. Show some love. And then verse 19, likewise. And then John says, and by this, you love indeed and in truth. By this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. That's this piece of armor called the breastplate of righteousness that involves the way I live and involves, we could say, fruit of the Spirit, various kinds. Another passage, we'll go back to the Apostle Paul again, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7 and 8. Paul here is at the end of his life. He's in prison. Verse 6 reflects that. He says to Timothy, writing to him late in his life and ministry, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. In other words, I'm close to death. And that's why most scholars believe this is the last epistle Paul wrote. And it was near the time of his death that, he, that this imprisonment from a human standpoint did not end well. It ended, church tradition tells us, with Paul having his head cut off. So as he's facing that, knowing he's near the end of his life, he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All right, so putting it in terms of the spiritual battle we're all in, what's the trouble that Paul is facing here? What's the trouble, or at least potential trouble? What's this? He believes he's about to die. So he, after that, what does the Christian face? Same thing everybody else does. It's appointed to men to die once. After that, the judgment. So Paul's sitting there in the prison. He's got four walls. He's got his thoughts. I'm going to be dead soon. 
I'm going to face my maker. I'm going to face my judge on the great judgment of the last day. How is it going to go? His hope that he's going to receive the crown of righteousness from the Lord, the righteous judge. The trouble is, what if I don't? That question. What if I don't? He's left there with his thoughts in the four walls. What if I don't? That's the trouble or the potential trouble. So what's the means that God uses to deliver Paul from this potential trouble of thinking, maybe it's not going to go well for me in the judgment? What's the piece of armor? Well, again, it's the breastplate of righteousness. He doesn't point to Christ's work on the cross. He could have. He certainly believed it. He knew that was the real thing that was going to keep him in the last day. But he points to something else, his own conduct, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now we all know it was God working in him. And the reason we know that is because Paul wrote it. So he obviously knew that. So he wasn't saying, I earned my salvation. I earned my crown of righteousness that I'll get on the last day. But he's saying, I did this. And sitting there in a Roman jail, maybe weeks before his head was cut off, maybe just days, he derived great peace and comfort from that fact. And he used those three eyes like David, he was shameless about it. And notice the last part of verse 8. We have a similar thing. And this crown God is going to give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. To everyone who lives a life demonstrating that they love Christ and they love the time of His appearing. They're living for it. In other words, people who, like the Apostle Paul, strive always to have a good conscience before God and man. James, the Apostle James, verses 4 through 7. James 4, 4 through 7. James here, writing a letter to saints of the dispersion, the 12 tribes, he says in James 1.1, 1, 1, which are scattered abroad, Jewish believers who fled because of the persecution in Jerusalem, no doubt. And James writes, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So there's that language right at the end. He is talking about the spiritual warfare, right? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? Well, let's go back to Ephesians 6. Put on the armor. 
Okay, what's that armor made of? Well, here again, it's made of the breastplate of righteousness in terms of the believer's righteous conduct and the believer's good conscience. What's the trouble in view here? Well, the trouble in view here is living a worldly life when you're a professing Christian. In verse 4, James writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So what's the trouble? You're living like a worldling? Here's the trouble. God doesn't like it. In fact, enmity is a pretty strong word. It's too strong for not like. God hates it. That's the trouble. Living in a way that God hates. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world, James goes on, makes himself an enemy of God. And he starts out with even stronger language. You're living like the world, he says to his readers, adulterers and adulteresses. That's the trouble. And what's the deliverance? Well, the deliverance is in verse 6, but he gives more grace. So God does forgive, but the grace also includes working in us so that we stop that kind of worldly behavior, that we repent of it. So let's notice the means that God uses then for the deliverance. First of all, negatively again, in verse 6, the last half of the verse, or the last part of the verse, it says, therefore, he says, God resists the proud. He resists the proud. You're going to say to me, James, you don't understand grace. We're saved by grace through faith. We have the righteousness of Christ. That's our breastplate. So don't tell us that we need to stop living like the world. We're covered. We're covered, James. And James says, that's the way you respond to what I'm saying? You need to bear this in mind. God resists the proud. He resists the proud. But positively, here's the, the, the armor. But he gives grace to the humble. In other words, humble yourself, repent of your sins, turn away from your worldly conduct that he's rebuking them for, submit to God and his commandments, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In other words, stop your unrighteous behavior, submit to God, do his will. There's your safety, he says. There's your safety. That's where you're going to have a good conscience again, and you're not going to have terrors thinking about the day of judgment. You'll be like Paul. Another text, go back to Paul, 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. Paul's writing to Timothy again. This time, uh, Timothy was in Ephesus. Paul was not in prison. And he says to Timothy as he ministers there in Ephesus, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience. We looked at that this morning. I can't repeat everything about what that means. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected, and it's referring to a good conscience, because the word which in the original is the same, it matches uh, the word 
good conscience, the word conscience also in the original. So he says, some people have forsaken or rejected a good conscience. They don't think that's important. They've rejected a good conscience and concerning the faith, they have suffered shipwreck. So what's the trouble here? Well, they're in warfare. Verse 18, the end of the verse, that you may wage the good warfare. And there's a danger of shipwreck. Verse 19, some, you, having, excuse me, you need to have wage the good warfare having faith and a good conscience, which some, that is a good conscience, have rejected concerning the faith and have suffered shipwreck. In other words, they don't have a good conscience. They don't think it's important. They don't agree with Paul that they need to strive always to have a good conscience before God and men. And Paul says that is the beginning of the end for them. That's the way you look at Christianity. That's the beginning of the end for you. You will suffer shipwreck. That's the danger. So what Paul recommends here is that you have a good conscience, Timothy. You need a good conscience. Verse 19. If you don't have a good conscience, this is the point here, you are going to be vulnerable to enemy fire all day long. And you'll be vulnerable to destruction. You're in a war if you're a Christian. We're all in a war. Here at the end of the verse there in verse 19, Paul looks at it as a naval battle. You're in a ship. And if you forsake a good conscience and you say, no, no, I have the righteousness of Christ. I don't need to think about my own righteous conduct. I don't need to strive for that. That's just legalism. I don't need that. Paul says you need it, Timothy. You need it. It's part of the breastplate of righteousness. If you don't have it, you're going to suffer shipwreck. You could look at this whole thing this way, brethren. Godliness, godly living, holiness, holy living, obedience to God is an extremely important part of the Christian life. You cannot read the Bible with any kind of honesty and come away with any other conclusion, period. You just cannot. That note is sounded in Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy if you're God's people, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Peter sounds it again in 1 Peter 1.16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. The abbreviated version of the same statement. It's important and so it shouldn't surprise us that godly living is an important part of the Christian's armor. Let's look at one other passage here of some examples. We began with David. Let's continue to use him as a case study, if you will. Psalm 32 this time. Psalm 32. And I'll read the first seven verses of Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now let's remember, that is about justification. And, and that text is quoted in Romans 4 
as part of a proof text of the doctrine of free justification. We've already been through it. Blessed is the man, verse 2, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's justification. And in whose spirit there is no guile. Then he says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. <coughs> Excuse me. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliver deliverance. So let's work through this text in a little bit different way. Here's David talking about the blessedness of, ha of having his sins forgiven. First question, wasn't David a believer? Wasn't he a believer? Was he not a man after God's own heart? Of course, the answer to that is yes, he was. That's what God pronounced him to be when he took him out of the sheep pen. And, and had him anointed as king by Samuel. So he was a man after God's own heart from day one when he appeared in the Bible. All right, so what was different in David's life now? What is he describing here with his groaning all day long in verse 3 and God's hand being heavy upon him day and night? What's he describing here? What was his trouble? What was different in his life now? Well, what was different in his life now was he had committed grievous sin. There's no descriptive title of what's going on here in Psalm 32 like there is in Psalm 51, which David said had to do with his sin in the matter of Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba. Sins of murder and adultery. Terrible, terrible sins. But this psalm is also about that sin. This is David's looking back on that sin and telling us what his life was like before he repented. So he had committed grievous sin. And not only had he committed grievous sin, but he was covering his sin. That's why his life was so miserable. Not only that he committed grievous sins, it's not like he got up from the ground then when he, re when he, when he re faced what he did and repented of it. He didn't. He went for months till Nathan came to him. He was covering his sin. That's what verse 3 is about. When I kept silent... My bones grew old. Do you think David didn't say a word all those months? No. When he said, when I kept silent, he means this. There was one conversation I should have been having, and that was with God. I have sinned. Forgive me. And he said, I wasn't having it. So when I kept silent, my bones grew old. God made him miserable. God gave him a troubled conscience. What a blessing it was to David to have that. Instead of going merrily along the way, as he might have to hell. God gave him a bad conscience till he finally opened his mouth. But in the meantime... Because of that terrible conscience as he covered his sin, 
It drained David of his spiritual energy and vigor. It virtually destroyed all of his spiritual strength. That's what David is describing here. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me, verse 4. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He was like a soldier in the middle of a battlefield without any armor. If I could put it in terms of Ephesians 6. Because of his bad conscience. Well, he had the righteousness of Christ. How is that working for you, David, when you're operating with a terribly bloodied conscience? What helped to bring him out of it then? What brought him out of this dilemma? Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I admitted what I should have admitted all along. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. One minute's conversation with God that he was unwilling to have for so long changes everything. And so it's all joy and gladness in verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. Verse 7, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. For a breastplate, you want something that is substantial, sturdy, and strong. But if you're living like David was living for a while, not confessing your sins and dealing faithfully with them, closely with them, if you're like the people James was writing to and called adulterers and adulteresses, happily playing with the world, thinking I don't need to be careful here, if that's the way you live, then when someone looks at your life and they start thinking about the breastplate of righteousness, does this Christian have it? It looks to them like all you've done is taken a bed sheet out of the linen closet and made a breastplate out of that. Maybe it's even a worn bed sheet. It has a lot of holes in it. It doesn't cut it. You may say, but I have the very righteousness of Christ. And John says, let us not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. Your conduct, your fruit, think of fruits of the Spirit, your track record isn't so encouraging as your profession. And think of how Jesus addressed that kind of objection. Let's notice for one last text, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twenty one. I referred to this this morning. Let's look at it now. Matthew 7, 21. Here we have the words as opposed to the fruit. Words as opposed to deeds and truth. And Jesus is speaking about that. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says, I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. 
but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Talking about it, miracles, Jesus goes on to say then, that's not it. He says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, here's the issue, who practice lawlessness. Then he goes on, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. You see what Jesus says the rock is here? And this is exactly what Pastor Hoffmeyer preached when he came to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in his sermons. He said that the key here was what we see in verse 23. I will say to them, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. That was the key. And then when he told the parable about the rock, what was the rock? The rock was doing the will of Christ. Christ himself is not the rock in this parable. Christ is the rock. He is the rock of our salvation. But this parable is focusing on a different aspect of the Christian life. How do you live? And as you think of the last day, and what Jesus is going to say to you on that day, the main thing you should be thinking about is that Christ has paid it all for me. Period. That's the main thing. But that's not the only thing. Because James says, if that's all you're thinking about, your profession isn't enough if you're adulterers and adulteresses. Let me close with a real-life example here. I'm going to use the one that I used in the basketball camp. And I, I could use any kind of sin. I use the sin of viewing pornography because I was speaking to young men in the 21st century who know how to click and how to scroll. So that's what I used. It's not just young men, though, who commit sins like this, but that's what I used. I could substitute for pornography any number of sins. I could substitute outbursts of wrath or anger. I could substitute the sin of lying, drunkenness, gluttony, fornication, adultery, any and all uncleanness, disobedience to parents, insubordination toward a boss at work or toward a husband if you're a wife. I could substitute bitterness, sinful speech, discontentment, violating the Lord's day, etc., etc., etc. I chose that one thing. I'm going to use it here tonight. I don't have time to repeat it with other sins. So here's how we look at it. The Bible says to me, flee immorality. Okay? So what do I do? I resist every form of immorality in terms of pornography. I do everything in my power to stay away from it. I try to follow what Paul said in Philippians 4.8. Whatsoever things are true, 
whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, and on and on and on. I try to think on those things and not to think on wicked things. I try to keep my eyes on good things and not evil things. That's how I fight the battle. So I'm living that way. Do I have a good conscience? Yes. All right? I go to my dad one day. I tell him, because I want some help in this battle. Dad, I sometimes struggle with the lure of pornography. Sometimes I fall into that sin. Will you help me, Dad? Yes, he says. He's a Christian dad. He says, don't use the internet without either me or your mom present. And if you ever do that, because you had to, you think, for some reason, tell me about it. Okay. Well, in a moment of temptation, I, the young man, a moment of temptation, a moment of weakness, I fall in that regard. My dad told me he'd help me. He said, son, when this happens, tell me. I decide to hide it. Do I have a good conscience? I do not. I fall again, grievously. By God's mercy, I confess my sin to God, and I go confess my sin to my dad. I renew my humble and believing effort to obey God's word. Do I have a good conscience now? I do. I, it's a humble and believing effort not to be confused with perfection, as I said this morning. Humility means I know I'm still a sinner. God has given me six good months. Hallelujah. Lord, help me to stay on my toes, spiritually speaking, and to watch and to fight and to pray. If you profess to be a believer in Christ and you want to be protected by God's armor, make sure you put on your breastplate every day. And that includes a good conscience. It's not the main part of the breastplate of righteousness. It's not the saving part of it. That's Christ and His work. But it's a vital thing if you are going to take up the whole armor of God. One of the reasons I spent so much time on this, brethren, today, two sermons, is that our problem is not just that ours is a weak and soft generation, the generation that we live in. It's not just that. It is. But it's also that we are bullied by people who reject this kind of teaching sometimes. And, and we're, we're urged to reject it ourselves and to look down on anything to do with obedience, good works, and the importance of a good conscience in the Christian life. So I say in closing, don't be bullied. Don't be bullied. Strive to do God's will. Take pains to do God's will. God's will, like Paul said in uh, Acts 24, 16. Strive to obey Him. 
Strive to be righteous in your living. And do that in the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of God and out of love to others, not for a reputation like a Pharisee. You do that and God will make this righteous living a part of an effective piece of armor in the daily spiritual battle that you and all Christians face every single day. In fact, that effort is a big part of this spiritual battle. That effort to maintain a good conscience. And the wicked one is aiming to ambush you and to stop you from that at every single turn. By God's grace and power, don't let him do it. And don't stop the fight. Never give up the fight. That's what we learn from this passage on spiritual armor and fighting the spiritual battle we're in. If you don't give up, then by the mercy of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, as Paul said, to will and to do according to his good pleasure, and you do that through the protection afforded by this armor, then on the last day, there will be laid up for you the crown of righteousness. And yes, it will be entirely and only that crown of righteousness that you receive because of Christ. I'm just telling you how the Bible says the battle needs to be fought. But when it comes, as I've said all day, morning and tonight, when it comes to how the battle is ultimately won, it's like this. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness. Help us to put it on and to wear it every day. Help us to be biblically aware that the main strength of it and the main part of it is the imputed righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is always utterly indestructible. But that another important part of it is righteous living. Help us to imitate David, Paul, James. Help us to take heed to the words of the apostles and our Lord himself and strap on this peace for every day's battle. And we ask this in Jesus Christ, your Son's name. Amen.